Let me ask you guys a question. What college football team are you for? Um, Auburn. 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 I'm, I'm, oh my goodness. Um, how do you how do you cheer for them? Um, um, when y'all play sports, me. Okay. Me. Who cheers the loudest for you? Me. Who cheers the loudest? Uh, my dad. Your dad? What does he say? Uh, because yep. he could. <laughs> Who cheers the loudest for you? My mom. And. Um. Who cheers the loudest? My dad. Let me ask you guys this question: Is it better for God to be for you or against you? For you. For you. For you. Well, why? Why do you want God to be for you? Uh, because we go to church. Oh, that's a good reason. Okay. Yeah. How do you know if God is for you? Mm, I know. Love him. Okay. What does he do? Uh, he loves you. He loves you? He answers your prayers. Oh, that's a good way, isn't it? All right. Why don't you love the children? Even if it's a bunch of Auburn fans surrounding me. <laughs> I think there was some poetic justice there. Oh, what great kids. And I, I love children this time of year because because they get it. They get the simplicity of this message. I mean, how do you know that God is for you? He loves me. I mean, does it need to get any more complicated than that? That I just simply know that God loves me and he's for me. And so this year, what we're going to do during this Christmas season is we're going to look at Christmas through the eyes of a child. Don't, don't you love that, that look on the eyes of a child in the midst of Christmas? Maybe you took your kids or your grandkids to the Montgomery Zoo and you, you get on the train and you, you ride through the light show and your kids' eyes are just so bright. Or maybe your kids are like my kids were when they were growing up is they would all sleep together on Christmas Eve in the same room and of course they didn't get much sleep but by the next morning when they, they woke up and, and they'd come down the steps into the den and all their presents were laid out and you just got to videotape them just looking so brightly. You love that. The child may not even understand what that is but here's our word for this month. It's the word wonder. It's to be in amazement, to be in awe. And children have that so much better than us. I told you about my grandson, George, moving to New York City. And uh, Ben had already flown up there. And Stephanie and I were taking Lindsay and George and Sport to the um, Montgomery Airport for them to fly, fly up there. And so we were all, you know, pretty upset about it. But it was uh, one of those days. And George had been talking for weeks about going to New York City. He was so excited about it. And then we walked to the Montgomery Airport, and we're walking up to the counter. And all of a sudden, I look at George's little brown eyes just brighten up. And he looks up at me, and he goes, Grandbuddy, is this New York City? <laughs> what a disappointment. But I, I love hearing Lindsay talk about when they got there, and they're driving down that canyon of skyscrapers, and he's just taking every moment in. You love that sense of wonder. We've all experienced it. Maybe it's a, the 10 or 11-year-old boy who, who walks outside and for the first time notices the neighbor's daughter in a whole new way. Maybe it's the groom standing here on this stage who those doors fly open and there's his beautiful bride glowing and his eyes are filled with wonder. We've all experienced that. And most of us experienced it the first time we really got the Christmas story. The first time you understood what a virgin was, it blew your mind. The first time you knew that this baby was actually 
God. You see, people had always wondered what God was like. They'd always been afraid of God's interaction with mankind. But when God shows up, no one had ever or could have ever imagined that God is going to show up in a barn in, as a baby with a teenage girl. It's crazy. And yet God did that. And we stand in amazement. Often, though, we, we lose this, this wonder, don't we? Let me give you two ways I think we lose this wonder. First of all, we lose it through just familiarity. We, we, just, we just get too familiar with it. I mean, you've had things in your life like that, that the first time you saw it or you drove by it, you went, wow. And then it became commonplace. My late mother would always talk about the first time she was living in Texas with my dad in the military, the first time she ate a Frito. She said it was just the most amazing taste she had ever tasted. Just a little Frito. Now imagine 60 years later, it probably didn't quite mean the same thing. And often we are so familiar with this story. Listen to me. When you're reading your Bible and you're ever reading a passage you've read over and over again, that's the most dangerous passage. Because you're so familiar with it, you don't even pay attention to it. And often when it comes to the Christmas story, we're so familiar with it, it doesn't hit us. And then second, sometimes it loses its luster through our own failures. You're a child and you're blown away with the God who loves you so much to come to this earth, who's got the power to come through a virgin. And then some things start happening in your life. Maybe your parents' marriage is falling apart and you begin to pray because you don't want your parents to get a divorce and you pray over and over that God would spare their marriage and it doesn't happen. Or, or maybe you're a little kid and, and, and you know what you want for Christmas. You want a dog. You're a Christian kid. You want a dog. You're not a non-Christian kid that wants a cat. <laughs> Sorry, cat lovers. All right. And, and you get the dog. And four months later, he's run over. Or maybe it's your grandparents that you adore and you love. And you pray for God to spare them. And and they still die. And and you begin to to lose the wonder of who God is because he didn't come through at the moment you thought he should have come through. Today, our goal is to recapture the wonder. And I believe we can do it with one simple sentence. It's a half of a verse in John chapter 1. Here's the verse. The Word became a human and lived among us. Read that with me. The Word became a human and lived among us. That, that one sentence is packed. First of all, there's that word, the Word. Now, that was a, a powerful word. We know Greek, it's, it's the word logos, the word we get logic. And John's writing to different audiences. He's, he's writing to a Greek audience who, when they see the word logos, what they think is the, the unseen power, the impersonal power behind the universe that keeps everything running correctly. Now, for a Jewish person, when they saw this word logos, they thought of the power of the word, that God spoke the world into existence, that all God has to do is speak and nothing becomes something. So that was a powerful idea for them. And even us today, it's still a powerful concept. When we think of the word, word, we think of the smallest form of communication. And what I want you to see is this Jesus, this word, is, is, is all of those things. He's the force that holds the universe together. 
He's the power that can speak things out of nothing in your life. And he is the clearest communication of God. Now, if you read the first 13 verses of John chapter 1, he's building up to verse 14, where he says that this word, he existed in the beginning. He actually was the creator, and he actually was, get this, God. And now he's come as a human being. I actually sort of like the old translations. He's flesh. He's not just a vision. He's not just being down. He's actually like us. It's an amazing story. Think about this. Jesus didn't just appear. A placenta nourished him. An amniotic sac surrounded him. He grew in his mother to the size of a fist. His tiny heart divided into chambers. And he was born in the flesh. So the word became a human. And he lived among us. Literally, he pitched his tent in our neighborhood. And we saw him. And he endured everything we've gone through. He went through puberty, pimples, long lines, cranky neighbors, fleeting fame, rejection, persecution, suffering, and even death. He's been through it. Now, what do we get out of this sentence? Just two points this morning. Two simple points to restore the wonder of Christmas. Number one, God gets me. He just gets me. Hebrews 4 puts it this way. Jesus is not out of touch with reality. He's been through weakness and testing and experienced it all. All but the sin. So, what's our response? Let's walk right up to him and get what he has to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. Listen, my friends, here's some good news to you. God understands you. As we would say, he gets you. How do you know? Here it is. He took a journey from heaven to earth. God didn't just yell down commandments from heaven. He didn't just send us a picture of himself. He says, I want you to see me in the flesh, and I want to go through everything that you go through. That's how we know it. He experienced what you've experienced. So as one translation says, he can empathize with you. I love the song we just sang a few moments ago. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. There was an old devotional song we used to sing. He came down to my level when I couldn't get up to his. Isn't that cool? I love the new couple at Landmark. When I was talking to them not long ago about what they loved about this church, they talked about the children's ministry. And they talked about what really made a big impression is when their children came here, Uncle Al got on his knees and talked to them face to face. He came down to their level. My friends, that is the truth about God. He has come down to our level so that he can get us. You ever had a person who just gets you? Who understands why How you tick, who understands how you're motivated, he understands what makes you sad or what makes you happy. Oftentimes, you may have a problem and you're trying to help get someone to help you. And you go to a few people and they're kind. They say, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, Call me if you need me. And they say all the right things. And that's nice. But the, the person that really helps you is the person you really share with. And they go, my goodness, 
I struggle with the same addiction. I've been depressed in my life. I'm, you know what? Sometimes I feel that lonely and, and they get you and it's just like it says here, he's now able to come and help us. And it's that person who gets you that can help you. I was eating lunch with a, a friend the other day and, and we were talking. I finally said to him, I said, well, what could I pray for you this week? And he said, pray about my job. I'm, I'm doing really well on my job, but I worry a lot. And then he used the word, he says, I obsess about it. And I immediately said, I get you. That's what I do. I obsess about it. Someone else may not get it, but I get it. And here's the great news about God. He gets it. Because he's been here, he gets, you name it, whatever you want to name, he understands. You say, no, he doesn't get it all, buddy. He doesn't get it all because he never sinned. I understand that. But did you listen to what the verse said? Let, Let me read it or quote it for you. He, Jesus, was tempted and always we are. Just catch this. Let it sink in. Jesus was tempted. What does that mean? It means Jesus was tempted. You say, what's the big deal? He was tempted. To be tempted means something comes in front of you that may not be right, that may even be evil, and you're drawn to it. Listen, to be tempted is not sinful. We're all tempted. The problem is when you fall to the temptation. And the cool thing about Jesus is he was so much in the flesh that you can only imagine there were some things that passed in front of him, and there was even a part of him that says, you know what, I feel like going for that. Can you imagine hanging on a cross and people spitting in your face and not a part of you going, I could destroy these people. Can you imagine, you know, being so disappointed with your disciples when they all run, you know, like they're scared to death and they won't stand up for you after you've lived for them? How angry you could be. My friends, here's here's the thing. Jesus was tempted. So even when you're tempted with sin, let me say this to you. Jesus understands it. He gets you. Now, when somebody gets you, either it can be freeing or it can be frightening. There's something cool about someone who understands the way you tick and understands why you do it. Somebody who can read you so well that they, they can look at you, talk to you and go, are you okay? But there's also something very frightening about that because you feel exposed. And when it comes to God, knowing that he really understands can either be freeing or frightening. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is it's absolutely freeing. He says, he is here to help. And therefore, he says, when you go to him, you can approach him not frightened. You approach him with confidence. It's like that friend that gets it. You approach them with confidence. So that brings us to our second point. Now he's God, get me, but God's for me. Now here, here's, the, here's the problem, guys. God could get me <laughs> and not like me. You ever had a friend maybe? It surfaced first time you thought, man, we could be great friends and you like this person and you start hanging out with them. But the truth is the, the longer you hang out with them, the less you like them. You ever been there? I mean, I, I would be fearful that the perfect God who hangs out with me long enough in the long run is just not gonna like me. But the truth is that's the people Jesus enjoyed hanging out with. God gets me and he's for me. That's what Romans 8 says. What then shall we say in response to all of these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what are all of these things he's talking about? He's talking about the gist of the book of Romans. It explains that Jesus came to our rescue. Jesus died in our place. Jesus has saved us. He's redeemed us. He's empowered us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. The whole book of Romans leads to this crescendo where Paul is saying, okay, guys, if you get this, if God is for you, who in the world could really affect you? Who could be against you? He is for you. And that is such a powerful thing to know because that's unusual. There's a great book called Leadership is Dead. And in this book, the author says there are three categories of people in each of our lives. There are people that are for you. There are people that are against you. And then there are people that are just for themselves. And think about that. You've got those people in your life. What Kubitschek, the author, says is what I want you to do is I want you to go back and and make a list of all the people in your life, and I want you to determine, are they for you, against you, or for themselves? That's a pretty good exercise. But then he says, I want you to also do this. I want you to flip it, and then I want you to make a list of these people, and I want you to ask yourself, do they perceive you to be for them, against them, or just for you? Now, let's be honest about this one just for a moment. There are a few people that are just 100% totally for you. Their motives are not mixed. They celebrate your success as much as they celebrate their own success. They're just for you. Absolutely. But those, those are few. I think probably for most of us, even fewer are people that are against us. Most of us don't have a lot of enemies. You might have a few that you know they just have bad motives about you. But if we be honest, I think for most of us, we're just sort of for ourselves. We're wrapped up in our own world. We're going to be nice to people, but, but I'm sort of looking after me. And I'm for me. And so when you find this person that's, that's for you, you need to cherish that relationship because it happens a few times in your life. Now, when it comes to God, I think most of us could sort of put God, I'm sorry, guys, I had a little hard time with this. You could probably put God in the same, same boat. How do you feel about God? How do you think God feels about you is the question. Is he for you? I mean, do you really believe deep down God is pulling for you? Is he against you? Many of us grew up in religious systems that trained us that God was against us. The the, the legalistic theology that says you blow it in one thing and you're gone. Um, God's looking to, to find that excuse to condemn you. That's not what the scripture teaches. God is not against you. God's not looking for an excuse to condemn you. God has given every reason to save you. Now, we also can go through a period where we think, you know what, God? You didn't intervene when I prayed for my child. You didn't save me from that divorce or that bankruptcy. You didn't save me from that issue that's plagued my life. And we might just think, you know what, God? The truth is I think you're just for yourself. I mean, you know, we're we're just supposed to sit back and give you the glory. It's just all about you. It's... So how do you know that God is for you. In Romans chapter eight, in the next verse after Paul says, if God be for you, who can be against us? He gives us the ultimate answer of how we know that God is for us. Listen closely to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. What's he saying? 
if he loved you enough to give his life on the cross, do you really think God has mixed motives about you? Do you really believe that God might not be for you? I mean, what else could God do to prove to you that he loves you, that he's for you? So how do you know? It's because he made another journey. He made the journey from the cradle to the grave. He came to this earth with a purpose, to die for you in your place. And what's he saying through that? I'm telling you, I am absolutely for you. So here, before we conclude here, I want you to turn to the person beside you. I want, to say, I want you to say these words. Say it to them. God is definitely for you. Say that to somebody. Okay, now, now I want you to turn to them and I want you to say something that really is harder to say. God is definitely for me. Turn to the person. God is definitely for me. You see, sometimes I think God's for you, but I know all my junk. And so I'm not so sure that God is for me. And here, here's, here's what the, the Christmas story means to us. With the simplicity of a child, two simple statements. God gets you, and he's for you. Now, when you know that, what difference does it make? Let me give you three points real quickly. Number one, I don't fear man. If God is for me, who can be against me? Too many of us fear what other people could do to us. You ever a friend, though, that, that if you were by then, you felt safe? I was thinking this week while studying for this, I was thinking about my brother Craig Hobson. I love Craig Hobson. And those of you here years ago, before his life ended way too quick for any of us, Craig was such a bold person. And one time we were going through some problems at the church and I was getting some criticism and Craig cornered me in the lobby. He said, buddy, do you need me to go take out a few people? <laughs> it was all in the name of the Lord, you know that. But, but I always said to people, I said, if I ever get in a fight, I want Craig Hobson with me, all right? Now what I'm saying to you here is you ever get in trouble? Who you want with you is God and he's there for you. And, and, and you, you should not... You shouldn't be afraid of life because he's there with you. And you shouldn't be afraid. Too many of us are so controlled what other people think about us. Let me tell you, bottom line, if God's for you, who cares what anybody else says about you? Number two, I can trust God. He's proven himself to be my friend. You have that person who's proven themselves to you. That though you may not understand everything they do, you might be disappointed, even your spouse. But they have got such a track record of, of being for you, of, of sacrificing for you, of loving you when you're unlovable, that even when information seems to contradict that, you've got enough good information to know it's not true. And when it comes to God, sometimes things happen in our life that are unexplainable, that don't make sense. They're not what we want. But if you know that God is for you, you know he can use it. In fact, if we went back three verses, Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. What's he saying? The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, the in-between. God is so powerful and he cares so much about you, even when it doesn't make any sense to you. God is using that to work in you. And then number three, if I get this, I run to God. 
Too many of us spend our life fearing God. Too many of us spend our life hiding from God, running from God. Because I think if God ever really saw me, he would just disapprove. Well, the truth is he already sees you. And the truth is he loves you. I remember studying the Bible with a guy years ago, and we would always get to the point where it's time for him to surrender his life to Jesus. And, and every time he'd back out, and every time we'd get there, and we were talking about him becoming a Christian, he'd start wringing his hands, and he'd say, buddy, I'm just so scared. I'm just so scared. And finally, one day, I'd sort of had enough of it. And we got to that point again. He starts saying, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. And I said, man, I said, Mitch, you don't need to be scared of giving your life to God. You need to be scared of not giving your life to God. That's what you ought to be afraid of. And my friends, when you understand the God of the incarnation, the God of the cross, the God of the resurrection, then you understand you would want to run to him. Repeat this verse with me, Proverbs 18, 10. The name of the Lord, say that, is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. So this morning, if you get this, You'll run to him. I love the story of the missionary George Harley. 1926, he moves to Liberia. He's just young married. He builds two things. He builds a clinic and he builds a church. First five years, no one ever showed up at his church. But 10,000 people have been to his clinic. And he's really disappointed because he wants to share Christ with these people. And then... A few years being there, they had a child. And then a few years later, their child named Bobby died. True story. And he's just devastated. And so he's lonely and he builds this coffin and he begins to carry this coffin through the city with his only son in it. And there was an older man there who saw him, who just joined him, who walked outside the city, who helped him dig the grave, who helped him bury the body and just right there in the fresh dirt... George just collapses and he begins to weep and cry and beat the earth. And the Liberian man just stands there in shock watching him. And then he jumps up, the Liberian man did. He jumps up and he runs back to the village and he begins to scream these words. White man, white man, he cries like one of us. And after that day, his church filled up because everything changed when they saw the tears of the missionary. And my friend, in your life and my life, everything should change when we see the tears of a God who became a man. Please, this morning, don't forget the simplicity of this message. Don't let the wonder escape you. That God is for you. It's like the children on the video. Who's the person who cheers for you? My mom, my dad. Who's the loudest in the stage? Stands. It's my mom. My friends, I want you to know this morning that the one who cheers for you the the loudest today is God himself. If you need to come to him, why don't you run to him right now while we stand and sing?